0: Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing the response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to discuss Office of Foreign Assets Control Sanctions, and other areas of sanctions compliance, and the inherent challenges of operating a company in compliance with U.S. and international sanctions when the list of sanctioned parties are a moving target. Joining me today are two experts on the subject of U.S. trade and economic sanctions, Arnold & Porter, partner Baruch Weiss, and my co-host for this episode, FTI's own Eric Rudolph. Baruch is a trial attorney focusing on white collar and national security matters. In the world of OFAC sanctions, he represents clients in OFAC enforcement, delisting, licensing, and criminal cases. He also provides OFAC guidance to corporations, nonprofits, businesses, and individuals. Outside of his OFAC practice, he also represents clients in both criminal and SEC securities fraud investigations, homeland and national security investigations, and general federal criminal matters, among other things. He's also the former acting deputy general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security and assistant general counsel for enforcement at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Eric is a senior director in FTI's export controls and sanctions practice, and a former senior in-house legal counsel with public companies, including Sensata Technologies and KVH Industries, where he oversaw sanctions, export controls, and other areas of compliance. Welcome, Baruch and Eric, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. Great to be with you both today. Well, great. So, OFAC sanctions regulations and the Bureau of Industry and Securities Export Administration regulations and the Directorate of Defense, Trade Controls, International Traffic in Arms Regulations, ITAR, have always been important tools to protect US foreign policy and national security interests. And looking specifically at sanctions, their use has aggressively expanded in recent years, and the continuing inclusion of organizations and individuals' names on OFAC and the Bureau of Industry and Security at Commerce list have been thrust into the middle of escalating tensions with China, Russia, Venezuela, and and other countries. Meanwhile, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, a previously little-known interagency committee of the U.S. government, has been at the center of several scuttled mergers and acquisitions as the U.S. seeks to protect national security interests from all angles. Sanctions and export controls compliance has always been challenging, but it seems to be verging on impossible. And with the Department of Justice pursuing criminal actions for sanctions-related cases involving North Korea, Iran, and other sanctions programs, it's not just a matter of civil or administrative enforcement. With that, let's talk about sanctions compliance. In 2019, Treasury published what is known as the Framework for OFAC compliance commitments, which sets forth five essential components of a sanctions compliance program and 10 root causes of sanctions compliance breakdowns. How important is it for organizations to align their sanctions compliance programs with this guidance, and what are some strategies to do so?
1: Sure. Let me let me jump in, Scott, and and, uh, and see if I can start addressing that. It is pretty important for companies to align themselves with this OFAC framework. OFAC has put out this framework. It was about uh, It was about a year ago, where they they talk about what a compliance program of a of a company should have. Now, it doesn't have to exactly mirror what is there, because as the framework itself makes clear, a company has to do a risk assessment first. There are some companies that are at much greater risk of running into OFAC sanctions problems, and others that are at a much lower risk. It depends. It depends on the nature of the customers, the geographical location of the customers, the nature of the, the company. Is it rendering services? Is it a manufacturing company? And so on. It is not the case that all companies need to have the exact same compliance program. It would be a mistake if they did. But they all should be looking to the framework for OFAC compliance. And that framework lists, as as you just indicated, kind of five essential components that really any good compliance program should have. First key step really is for a company to try to identify the likelihood of risks and the type of risks that it would have vis-a-vis OFAC so that it could take that framework and tailor it to the company and the company's business. A failure of the company to adopt a compliance program can really get it into trouble if it turns out that it finds out that it'd been in violation of the OFAC sanctions regulations.
2: You know, Scott, I think I would just add to that, you know, simply that with the release of this document, OFAC is really telling us that this is what it expects to see in a sanctions compliance program, and it it's going to examine the adequacy of that program against this framework when it's considering its response in an enforcement matter. So Brooke, I would just ask, you know, given that, another trend that we've seen for OFAC is to take this guidance and add compliance commitments into its settlement agreements for its enforcement actions, I guess, to help ensure that companies will maintain these key program elements going forward. Do you have any further insights or practical thoughts for companies about that process?
1: Yes. uh, If you have a good compliance program in advance and then you stumble against an OFAC Sanctions violation, OFAC will likely go lightly on you and OFAC will look at your compliance program and say, okay, it looks like a good program. We understand that even with good programs, occasionally a violation can sneak through and you're less likely to have OFAC imposing on you certain compliance improvement steps. On the other hand, there are instances, and we're going to talk about one or two a little bit later. Recent instances where there were sanctions violations by a company, and OFAC identified the reason for the violations, and that was because of failures or inadequacies in the compliance program. And that could lead to two results. First, the one OFAC will be an improvement of the compliance program, the other one is that it may impact the size of any financial penalty. If you didn't have a good compliance program in place, then you run the risk that OFAC will impose a financial penalty that it might not otherwise have imposed, or of a size that it might not otherwise have imposed because of the, the absence of an adequate compliance program.
0: So a very important part of complying with these various frameworks, be they OFAC or the, the BizList or ITAR, is doing comparative analysis against these large lists of individuals and entities, and in some instances, vessels and countries. I mean. Can global companies operate within the law without having to screen every transaction, every vendor, and every customer, and every payment? Well, um, yes,
1: but with an asterisk. So you have to know every customer. And if you don't know the customer, then you really need to screen them. And again, there, are, there is software that allows for screening against the OFAC list, and not just the OFAC list, the commerce list, and all the other lists. Indeed, the international list. The UN has a list. There are EU countries that have lists. It is not that hard to get software that will screen against whichever lists that you want. That's not to say that you have to do it all the time. If your company is a company that sells domestically as opposed to foreign entities, to foreign customers, you may not need it. Even if you sell to foreign customers, if you're a manufacturing company that manufactures widgets that are sold to five customers that you've dealt with for years... You don't need to screen every transaction again. You don't need to screen every vendor again. It really depends on the risk assessment. If you operate a lot, you sell to a lot of customers, first-time customers in regions of the world that UAE, and there's some risk of uh, diversion to Iran, you may have to do more of a check and more of a review and more of diligence than you would have to do if you're selling to the same customers in Canada that you've sold for, for so many years. I would say another thing that you wanna be concerned about is the status of vendors or customers can change. So you don't wanna be in a situation where when you've initially done business with a vendor or a customer, and then you do business with them for years, and you don't realize that in year two, one of them has been added to the list, but you haven't re-screened or updated your screening. That's another thing to keep in mind, and that has certainly happened instances where the relationship began, where the customer was perfectly fine, but then the customer was later added to the
0: list. That's a really good point you make. Uh, Go ahead, Eric.
2: No, I was just going to say, Scott, that, you know, practically speaking, there's just no way to know or be certain that you aren't doing business with a sanctioned party if you don't screen, but you know, as Baruch is telling us, which parties you should screen, when you should screen, how often you should screen, what issues to screen against. In other words, what the program should look like will all depend, as as Baruch says, on the unique risks and operations of the company. And as Baruch alluded to, in fact, OFAC references screening failures actually as a root cause for violations in its 2019 framework document. And we've seen a number of enforcement cases that highlight this issue, including some very prominent companies, Scott, such as Apple. So, Baruch, are there any practical lessons that you think one can take from these enforcement cases related to screening?
1: Well, yes. I mean, one is you want to have good software, you want to have good training, you want to have a good compliance program, and OFAC has made it easier with this framework. It's, it's a little bit embarrassing for some of these major companies that have recently been the subject of OFAC penalties or enforcement actions, some of them had some very simple basic flaws in their compliance programs, something which should have been fixed. And when you go through the kind of 10 categories of mistakes or problems that OFAC has identified in that framework, mistakes or problems with compliance programs that have led to the imposition of penalties Some of them are really embarrassing. One is just a lot of companies don't yet have a sanctions compliance program. And as a result, there's nobody there to catch these things. Well, that's pretty obvious, pretty glaring, and pretty embarrassing. Some are more subtle, but we now have the advantage that OFAC has identified them. So they shouldn't be subtle anymore. They are there and they are components that you should incorporate into your compliance program.
0: Well, I also think that some of what you guys were talking about illustrates a very important point that maybe not everyone fully appreciates is the fact that these lists and, you know, the public record and and the risk profile of a counterparty, they're all dynamic, they're all evolving, they're all changing, you know, sort of baked into any compliance program needs to be some element of dynamism as well where these things are refreshed and you know you have to operate on the assumption that the risk profile of these different counterparties is going to change over time So you have to have a mechanism to catch that.
1: Yes, it's a good point.
0: So in 2019, the Government Accountability Office issued a report. It acknowledged that U.S. government agencies themselves were struggling to understand, in some instances, the opaque ownership structures of some of its contractors. And that same year, and I think we talked a little bit about this a little while ago, Apple was fined. $466,000 $466,000 by OFAC for for just that, for failing to identify an OFAC, especially designated national who was an owner of, a, of an Apple counterparty. You know, in this instance, the commercial partner had taken several steps to try to obscure the ownership and conceal this connection that they had with this prohibited person. That would seem to represent somewhat of a ratcheting up of regulatory expert expectations in terms of counterparty due diligence.
2: That's very true Scott. Brooke, given, given what Scott's telling us, what steps should companies take to avoid OFAC liability when the counterparties are deliberately obscuring their true ownership?
1: That's a good question and it's complicated yet further by what is called in the in the OFAC world the 50% rule. And what that says is If you have somebody on an OFAC list and who's on the SDN list, and that person or entity owns more than 50% of another company or subsidiary, then that second company, that subsidiary, is also deemed to be on the list. It's deemed to be blocked. Now, when I say deemed, it may not be on the list. But from OFAC's perspective, if an SDN, especially designated national, owns more than 50% of a company, then that, uh, that other company is blocked whether or not it appears on OFAC's list. So when you have people who are trying to obscure their true ownership, and on top of that, you have this OFAC determination that it will, if you do business with a company that's not on the list, if that company is more than 50% owned or in some instances controlled by, by somebody who is on the list, that could make it very challenging. All of a sudden, you now realize... It's not quite as simple as just running the names of your customers and vendors through your software. You actually, based on a risk assessment, have to do some due diligence in many instances. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and hire a top forensic entity to investigate every client or every customer that you have, but you do need to consider asking certain questions and in some unusual situations, yes. Undertaking that kind of investigative work to make sure that the entity that you're dealing with is not true, is not owned by ensuring your ownership. One last thing that I'll throw out is yet another complicating factor here, is that OFAC works on a strict liability basis, meaning it's a no-fault basis, even if you're not at fault. If you deal with an entity that you're not supposed to deal with, even if you did the due diligence and you found nothing, OFAC still reserves the right to impose penalties. It does not require that you act willfully. And so when you combine the strict liability and you combine it with the 50% rule, and you have an SDN who's deliberately trying to obscure their, their ownership of an entity, you do have a situation where you can inadvertently do business with somebody that you're not supposed to, and you can find yourself in a situation where OFAC is contemplating imposing penalties as a result. So what that means is ultimately the answer to this is always go back to that risk assessment, always think possibility of a violation here or a possible violation. And then you have to ask questions and get guarantees and do due diligence beyond in the, in, in the situations where the risk assessment it, beyond just running the name through the software.
2: It's really, there's just no doubt that the factors you're describing, Baruch, the 50% rule OFAC has, the strict liability regime, just present tremendous compliance challenges for companies. But You know, while OFAC certainly seems to command the lion's share of attention when we talk about sanctions, there actually are a number of sanctions and export control lists and obligations that companies really have to incorporate into their sanctions and trade compliance programs. So, Brooke, what steps do you think companies should take to harmonize their various sanctions and export controls obligations into a single cohesive program?
1: Well, finally, you've asked me an easy question. Um, <laughs> questions until now were, were pretty tough. The, the, the good news here is that although there are multiple export control and sanctions programs, even in the United States, you've got the Commerce Department has it, its, the State Department, of course, OFAC and the Treasury Department. As a general matter, the compliance programs that you need for all of these are almost the same or very similar. They're not identical, but they're very, very similar. They're similar enough that you usually are going to have one set of software that will look for the relevant names for all of them. You'll have one chief compliance officer who will handle all of these, and the training is much the same. There are some differences. So, for example, in BIS, in in commerce, they're concerned with the nature of the goods that you export and what sort of classification do they have under the EAR. So, If you work for a company that's manufacturing all sorts of different technological goods, to master those export controls, you really need to master the EAR regime and understand which device gets what code and what rating in the EAR regime. So, They're not identical, but they are similar enough that there's a significant efficiency to having them all handled by the same compliance officer and the same, same staff and or lawyers who do your export control and sanctions work.
2: Excellent. Well, if that was a softball, then let me make it a little bit more tricky here. I'm going to change direction a little, Bruce. Scott earlier, in the beginning of our segment, mentioned the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And and he mentioned how it figured prominently in the scuttling of some major acquisitions in the past few years. So I guess the question that one would have is, should U.S. companies be running all proposed sales or acquisitions by this committee or should they just hope for the best?
1: Okay, good question. So first, let me begin by saying the question itself has changed. And what I mean by that is, through the history of CFIUS, it was a voluntary process until recently. And what that meant was, that if a company a u.s company for example was going to be acquired by a foreign company and there was a concern that perhaps the president the the executive branch would determine that there was a real national security problem with the acquisition the u.s company voluntarily it had the option of going to syphius and saying will this transaction pass muster and if syphius said thumbs up you're good then the company could go forward with the transaction confident that it would not be undone. If the company decided not to avail itself of the CFIUS option, it ran the risk that even after the acquisition, should the deal come to the attention of CFIUS and should it find that the deal raises significant national security concerns, that CFIUS may just turn to the company and say, you've got to unscramble that A. We're not going to let that transaction Stand. A couple of years ago, there was legislation by Congress, and there's been implementing regulations from the Treasury Department, which kind of chairs CFIUS, although so CFIUS is comprised of a good number of different federal agencies, departments, and offices, and so on, that makes it mandatory for certain classes of acquisitions to be submitted to CFIUS for review. So for certain, for certain acquisitions, and you can imagine those are acquisitions that relate to companies that manufacture goods that may be of some sensitivity to our national security, that they need to get a mandatory approval from CFIUS. And there's now a change in regulations that's about to commence in October that essentially ties it in with the Department of Commerce, BIS and EAR classifications of the goods. If it's the kind of good essentially that would require an export license if you sell it, to a foreign company, if you export it to a foreign company, then if a foreign company is gonna acquire the US company that manufactures it, it becomes subject to mandatory CFIUS review. So that's the first thing. It's no longer voluntary in certain cases, it is often mandatory. And it's gonna be mandatory presumably in the cases that are most likely to raise concerns. If you don't fall within the mandatory category, then it's still advantageous in many instances to run it by review. Because first of all, if you're not in the mandatory category, you'll probably get a yes. It's likely you'll get a yes. And if you're an easy case, you may be able to get a yes relatively quickly. And why wouldn't you want to get a yes that you don't have to live with the concern that maybe, just maybe, that would be of national security concern to CFIUS. So you don't have to do it all the time. There are are situations where it's pretty clear that you don't need to do it, but... If you're in the voluntary category and you have some question, that just may be the situation where you want to do it, get it quickly, and get reassured that the deal will not be scuttled by CFIUS down the road.
0: Those are some great insights, you guys. You know, really appreciate both of your time today. That was uh, Arnold importer Porter litigation partner Baruch Weiss and FTI consulting export controls and sanctions compliance subject matter expert Eric Rudolph. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FGI Consulting's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraudy Strategy, when we'll hear from Cobra and Kim partner Rob Rathmell. We're going to examine the often opaque, secretive world of fine Art.